Let's turn to God's Word together now. Our passage today is from John chapter 1, starting at verse 19 and reading through to verse 34. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have bore witness that this is the Son of God. Amen. May God bless us the reading of this word. Thank you, Fiona, and let me add my welcome, um, especially if you're new joining us here at Chalmers, and we hope soon you feel um, very much at home with us. You'll see on the back of the service sheet there's an outline, which may be helpful, and please also keep your Bibles open at page 886, which definitely will be helpful. Um, It's easy to miss something that's staring you right in the face. You may not not know this about me, but... um, I have a, my wife will tell you, I have a tremendous ability to be looking for something and not really see it, whether it's my keys or my wallet or my phone. Um, I've once spent a number of minutes charging around the house looking for a watch and complaining that I couldn't find a watch that was on my hand. I've actually looked for keys that I was holding. And my worst so far up here is I walked home from Chalmers one Sunday morning, 40 minutes or so, um, having driven in. (laughs) And I walked past the car, which I had parked in that space. I got home a bit frustrated that I had to walk and just said, where's the car? It's possible to miss something that's staring you right in the face. And, And it's kind of frustrating, isn't it, when it's with things like keys and wallets and phones. When it's with a person, the stakes are slightly higher. So there's a minister in London. Um, he's actually the guy who wrote uh, or helped write the Life Explored course that we run on Monday nights at the moment. Um, and as an aside, it's not too late to join in. Week three is a great chance to join in if, if you're interested in exploring the life that Jesus offers. He wrote this course, and um, he once he was invited to a lunch once, and he tells the story that he was standing outside for about five minutes waiting to go in, and there was a young man opposite him who he vaguely recognized, but couldn't, couldn't work out 
who he was. It seemed like the, the other man, the young man, was kind of expecting to be recognized and expecting this minister to start the conversation. But he couldn't work out who it was, so he didn't. He just stood there in silence, slightly awkward silence of five minutes. Um, and then later, he realized it was Prince William. <laughs> five minutes he had, standing opposite the future heir to the throne. And he didn't, didn't realize Wasted it entirely. It passed him by. And in our passage this morning, we are looking at a far bigger um, version of that. King Jesus. John's Gospel has been introducing us to this king. Not just the king of England or the UK, but a king of the world. God's king. Standing right in front of us. The word became flesh, as we heard earlier. This eternal word became flesh stepped into human history. And sadly, it's easy to miss what's staring you in the face. Let me say, when I first read this passage, I think in my prep, I think I was missing how big what's in here actually is. I thought that this passage might be a bit of an anticlimax. So I'm on two weeks, last week, this week, and then Robin will carry on the series. And I thought, I've got a great passage last week, loads of stuff to say, that amazing prologue that begins before the Big Bang, in the beginning, and comes all the way up to the dusty streets of um, first century Israel. Amazing. And then I've got this passage, which is really just a conversation with John the Baptist, just a guy, and it's a conversation with the inspectors that have been sent to him, the kind of Ofsted, religious Ofsted of the day, um, just coming to find out kind of what he's doing, who he is. Perhaps a bit of an anticlimax after last week. But actually, I was missing what was staring me in the face in this passage, and I hope by the end of this morning we'll all see just how amazing what's in here really is. But as the conversation starts, well, it's not actually that promising. If you look down at verse 19, here are the um, inspectors, the, the religious offstead of the day. They come to find out about John the Baptist, and the conversation doesn't seem to go that well. Um, who are you? They ask, verse 19. He confesses, I'm not the Christ. Oh, okay. So you're not the really big cheese. You're not the Messiah, the King, the anointed one. Let me start by telling you, I'm not that. Don't get excited about me. That's not me. Now, they've only come to visit him because people are starting to talk about John the Baptist. Um, he's not just the kind of hottest thing in religious education of the day. People are actually starting to say, we think this guy might be from God. We think he might be one of these kind of promised figures from the Old Testament, a really big cheese. And so there's quite a lot of excitement as you hear them ask, are you the Christ? And, and John says, no, no, that's not me. So try again, pick another big figure from the Old Testament, another expectation that someone would arrive. Verse 21, they asked him, are you Elijah? But he says, no, I'm not. Oh, okay. Uh, let's reach into our Old Testament rucksack and, and pull out one more promise. There was a promise in Deuteronomy that one day a great prophet would come. And they ask, verse 21, are you the prophet, he answers, no. I mean, it's going not particularly well. It's a bit of anticlimax, even in how the, the conversation starts. And you can almost sense the rising frustration in verse 22. They said to him, 
Who are you then? Look, we need to give an answer to, him, to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And this is where John the Baptist begins to make our big point this morning. The big point this morning is that John the Baptist is not the center of attention. They've come to find out about him, but he wants to tell them that they are missing what's staring them in the face. They're missing the point. They're missing the identity of Jesus, Jesus Christ. So he goes on to make three big statements, three massive claims about Jesus Christ. And each of them shows that Jesus should be the center of attention. You'll see them on the handout. They're listed there. Um, Listen, the eternal God is here. Look, the Lamb of God is here. And believe me, the Son of God is here. Three times he gives Jesus a kind of, this is who Jesus is. And each time John the Baptist says, which means I'm really not important, which means I'm just a signpost to that one. It means I'm just a witness, the announcer of the real king. Jesus is the one that matters. That might not be a surprise if you were here this week. This whole book of John's gospel is is building the case for Christ, the case for Jesus. I said it's like a court case. We've had an opening statement that says, this is what I'm trying to prove, that Jesus is your king, whether you know it yet or not. And we're going to go on through lots of evidence being presented for that. And John the Baptist is the first witness statement. He's the first person to take the stand in this case. And he's got three witness statements, all trying to show that it is easy to miss what's staring you in the face. It's easy to miss the identity of this king. Sometimes people go through their whole lives thinking there's not much interesting or amazing to say about Jesus. He's just another religious leader. He's just kind of a wise teacher, like a Socrates or a Confucius or someone like that, the Buddha. He's got interesting ideas, but, but nothing much more. There's nothing much to say about Jesus. Sometimes even Christians go through their lives with a one-dimensional view of Jesus, a kind of pocket-sized Jesus, who can forgive my sins, but I don't know that much more about him. John the Baptist would testify, you have no idea what you're missing out. You're missing what's standing in front of your face. The eternal God made flesh. The Lamb of God, yes, a sin saviour. The Son of God, a royal king. So, inspectors coming to check out on me. Well, when you send your report back to Jerusalem, says John the Baptist, don't forget to include most of it about Jesus, all of it about Jesus. Edinburgh, as you listen to sermon after sermon from the Bible, don't miss the point. It's all about Jesus, and he is the most extraordinary person. So, let's dive into point one. First witness statement. John says, listen, the eternal God is here, whereas I'm just the announcer. The eternal God is here, I'm just the announcer. You get that sense that John's trying to show how small he is compared to this figure in verse 26. Let me just read verse 26. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you don't know, 
Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. So clearly this Jesus figure is way above John. He can't even go near untying his sandal laces. And why is he so big? Well, verse 23 is the key point. Verse 23, when finally John tells them what his role actually is. Verse 23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. Now, we're going to need to fill in a little bit of background here. Um, Remember, John's speaking to to people from Jerusalem who kind of know the scriptures. They're they're the Ofsted, the the religious inspectors. Um, so, So he's expecting them to fill in what they know from Isaiah. So let me catch us up. This is taken from Isaiah chapter 40. And it's an amazing promise that God is going to rescue his people. It's the promise of a big rescue. And if we have more time, I go through all the, all the incredible aspects of this rescue. But the one focused on here, and perhaps the most remarkable bit of the rescue, is that God himself, that is the Lord, or Yahweh is his name in the Old Testament, the Lord himself is going to come to his people. And, I'll quote, tend his flock like a shepherd, gather his lambs in his arms. God himself is going to step in as a shepherd of his people. And if that's really true, if that's actually going to happen, you'd expect a bit of a fanfare, some kind of warm-up, as we said last week. And Isaiah 40 promises that there'd be a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. There would be a preacher who comes first who says, okay, we need to get things ready. It's put like this. uh, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It's kind of tarmac over the desert. Shrink the mountains, bring up the valleys, roll out the red carpet because God is about to turn up. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, says Isaiah. All flesh shall see it together. So Isaiah spoke of the day when God would step in, and just before it, he'd send a messenger. And I assume when people were reading that, lots of them thought that was a kind of metaphor. I mean, God's not going to step in, is he? Surely that's like God's going to kind of draw near to his people in some kind of spiritual sense. God's people are going to feel God's with them in in a much closer way than ever before. But he's not actually going to turn up, is he? How could he? He doesn't have legs. God's invisible. Well, actually, Isaiah's point was that God was literally going to walk in. He gave some clues. Do you remember Isaiah 9, Christmas? You probably heard it. Unto us a child is born, and his name will be Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor. The kind of names you give to God would be given to a child, a baby. Jesus. I mean, it's shocking, but that's what Isaiah was saying. And now John is saying that's what's happening in history. That's why John the Baptist says, well, I can't even go near his sandals. I I couldn't do the most menial task for that man because the eternal God is stepping into human history. So you think five minutes not talking to Prince William was a bit of a fail, and it was. Or here, God Almighty, God the Son, 
king of the universe, maker of the universe, uncreated creator, steps into history, stands among us as a man, here on planet Earth, here in this nation, near our town. Whereas John the Baptist, he's just a voice, just a, a one preparing the way, an announcer, laying down the, the red carpet, preparing the moral tarmac, preparing people to make, meet their maker. And he says, don't miss the point. Don't spend your time thinking about me. I worked for a church in Cambridge the year that the Queen came to visit. She sadly wasn't visiting us. She was visiting one of the colleges. But it was just behind, the front door of the college was just where our back garden was. And so we got a visit from security. Uh, and they kind of went round. They checked the manhole covers for bombs, as you do, and, and various other things they did, which I'm probably not allowed to say. Uh, and, and do you know what? And then a day later, the Queen came. And I watched it all from the railings. It was amazing. Do you know what? I have no idea what that security guy looked like. I remember him being big, but apart from that. Whereas the queen, I could tell you what she was wearing, what she looked like entirely. And that's right, isn't it? In fact, his only job was to prepare the way so that she would be safe when she arrived, so that the path would be ready. John the Baptist didn't want people remembering him. He's just an announcer. He's just a preacher, preparing the way for the one, helping us not miss the one. As an aside, you know that preachers have failed if you go away talking about us. I mean, it happens all too easily, doesn't it? I do it sometimes, I'm sad to say. You go home at lunch and you talk about the talk, or you talk about the idiosyncrasies or the style of us. That's not the point at all. Jesus we proclaim, him we proclaim, not ourselves. So always let's encourage each other and ourselves to, to, to be thinking about the one we're speaking about, Jesus. He must increase, I must decrease, says John the Baptist in chapter 3. And I used to think that was quite humble of John. He must increase, I must decrease. Oh, what a humble attitude. I think it's just realistic. I mean, Jesus made John the Baptist. Before I was around, Jesus was around eternally. He's the great I am. Of course I don't have any right to touch his sandals. Of course you should be asking about him, not me. But the tragedy is, if you look at verse 26, John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. We might think, okay, it's early days, they just haven't spotted Jesus yet. But as John goes on, we're going to discover that despite all the evidence being put in front of their face, people still miss Jesus. They miss what's staring them right in the face. There are loads and loads and loads of people around Edinburgh who know Jesus as a swear word and not much more. That's extraordinary when he's the one who made them. There are quite a lot of people, and a smaller number I guess, who sit through church service after church service. I guess there are probably even a few in Chalmers who sit through service after service after service. Jesus being put right in front of your eyes and yet never actually trust in him for forgiveness. That's John the Baptist's first witness statement. The eternal God is here. I'm just an announcer. Then secondly, look, the Lamb of God is here. The Lamb of God is here. I'm just um, a signpost 
It's funny that our lights aren't quite working today. Um, You may not have noticed, actually, because you look at what the lights shine on, but there are usually some lights up there which would make my face easier to see. John the Baptist was a light shining on Jesus. And this is the second thing he says. The Lamb of God is here. Verse 29, it's pretty clear, isn't it? Verse 29, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again, verse 30, that point that Jesus is the big one. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. For this purpose, verse 31, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Earlier in verse 25, he was asked by the inspectors, why are you baptizing? Well, here's the answer, verse 31. I'm baptizing for the purpose of pointing to Jesus. I'm just a spotlight to point you in the right direction, to show you the Lamb of God has appeared. But we need to do a bit of thinking about what is this Lamb of God title? What's that actually getting at? And you'll see we're going to have a diagram with arrows and to look forward to on the handout. Um, Remember, John's referring back to the Old Testament. He's speaking to people who know it, these inspectors. And verse 29, what we're looking for in the Old Testament is a Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So where do you see that? Well, I think actually the answer in this case is a combination of three passages in the Bible, three big passages in the Bible, Genesis 22, Exodus 12, and then Isaiah 53. I'm actually sure all three of those passages are in mind because John's gospel quotes from all three of them or alludes to all three of them later on. And you can ask me if you're interested. I'll show you where um, uh, with more time afterwards. Let's just briefly introduce those. Genesis 22, that's the story of Abraham, who nearly sacrificed his son Isaac. But God stepped in and provided, not literally, God provided a lamb to be sacrificed in Isaac's place. Second passage is Exodus 12. That's where the Passover meal began. It was the rescue from Egypt that began the Passover, which has been celebrated annually um, right up until the coming of Jesus. It's the moment in history where God commands the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb, and the lamb dies in the place of their firstborn son. So that when God's judgment passed over the land of Egypt, that's why it's called Passover, as God's judgment passed over Egypt, the firstborn children were safe because the lamb had died. Now that's very brief, but as you hear those two stories, can you see the similarity. What, what, what do they have in common? We, we won't do it interactively. They're too big, too big a group, but I'd like to. What do they have in common? Well, you could say things like, there's a lamb, lamb, lamb. What else do they have in common? Well, there's a threat of God's people dying. And what else do they have in common? Substitution. The lamb dies so that God's people don't. Isaac is saved because the lamb dies in his place. The firstborn son at the Passover is saved because the lamb dies in their place. But actually, that's not enough to get the full picture. Because remember, John said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's not a huge amount of mention of the world 
uh, in Genesis 22 or, or Exodus 12. There's not even a huge amount of mention of sins. So that's where we need to go, to Isaiah 53, which is the kind of centerpiece promise about the Lamb. Isaiah 53, which is a bigger and better Passover rescue. It's great I'm preaching this on a day when we have people from different nations standing up here as Christians. So you this morning. It's great because Isaiah 53 is really explicit. The whole book is explicit that this rescue is for all the world. Early in Isaiah, we're told that not only does Israel have a problem, they're guilty before God, all the nations have a problem. Chapters 12 to 24. All the nations have a problem. All of us are guilty before God. By the end of Isaiah... All the nations are being invited to join in with God's people for free. Just a free invite, come and be clean. And you've got to say, how do you get from there to there? Well, the answer is this Isaiah 53 passage. The Lamb of God who pays as a substitute for not just Israel, but the whole world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let me read a brief extract. And if you're drifting off, now is a moment to zone back in. Because it's easy to miss what's staring you in the face sometimes. And the verse I'm about to read is one of the most important sentences you can hear. Let me read it. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sins of us all. I'll carry on. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Listen to how Isaiah 53 puts it just before that. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we're healed. It's the language of substitution, the swap. He, this lamb, now a person, not just an animal, of course, because how could an animal ever swap into my place? This person died for our sins so that we, from whatever nation, whatever background, can actually be forgiven. It had to be someone unblemished with a perfect record. A lamb led to the slaughter. You see, having a bath in the Jordan River with John the Baptist was never going to be enough to deal with sin. Sometimes people struggle to believe, can God ever forgive me? What could I ever do to make up for how I've treated God or how I've treated people or even how I've treated myself? What could I ever do to make it up to God? And sometimes people will do extreme things in churches or um, in their lives to try and make it up. But actually, even going out into the wilderness with John the Baptist and getting baptized by water, that is not enough. In verse 26 or verse 31, both times John points out he only baptizes with water. It's just enough to kind of clean you on the outside. But really, our record's too dirty. We're too guilty for God. And the price has to be paid. So actually, the whole purpose of John's baptism, the water stuff, 
was to point to the one who can do the real stuff, the stuff on the inside, the Lamb of God who can pay for our sin. And in a moment we'll see the one who has the Holy Spirit who can wash us on the inside out. So John says, look, the real sin-solving substitute is here. He is standing right in front of your face. This is the one that Genesis 22 pointed forward to and Exodus 12 pointed forward to. And most of all, Isaiah 53 described, describing the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. But there's also a really sobering thing in Isaiah 53. Do go and read it. It's a great thing to reflect on if you want something for your um, devotional times this week. There's a really sobering thing, because just after we're told that this servant figure was led like a lamb to his death, Isaiah says this, By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and listen to this bit, As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Do you hear what that's saying? Who considered that Jesus went to his death for the people. As in, they didn't get it. Loads of people heard it and didn't get it. And actually, at the end of Jesus' public ministry in John, John chapter 12, he'll reach back to Isaiah 53 and say, though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord, the suffering servant, been revealed? It's a really shocking thing because Jesus was the climax of the scriptures. Loads of promises were pointing to him, these big arrows. On the handout, I actually should have added a fourth arrow, shouldn't I? Because John the Baptist himself is an arrow. I mean, it doesn't get more explicit in terms of God's kind provision to people. It doesn't get much more explicit than to place a man who's literally pointing and saying, look, look, behold, the Lamb of God, who take, and you don't even have to know what Lamb of God means because he explains it, who takes away the sins of the world. Look, it's right in front of you. And yet, even some of his own generation didn't understand or didn't consider. Please don't be someone who misses Jesus. I don't yet know you well enough to know who here hasn't actually trusted Jesus, even though they come in week by week. But if you haven't put your trust in Jesus for forgiveness, for your forgiveness, please don't miss him. But then, final, final witness statement, much more briefly. Point three, believe me, the Son of God is here. This is the last thing John says. I'll read from verse 32. John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom the Spirit descends and remains, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Striking, this was new to me actually, that John the Baptist didn't know who, which, he knew who was coming, but he didn't know who it was until the Spirit descended onto Jesus. But he's now an eyewitness. He'd had a divine tip-off that the sign would be that the Holy Spirit would come onto this person. And Actually, there are promises in Isaiah that the king who comes would have the Spirit upon him, the Messiah. 
And now John is an eyewitness saying, I saw God mark out this person. You know those old lottery adverts, it's you, that's a long time ago. The kind of spotlight suddenly comes on one particular individual out of all the crowds. John the Baptist says, I saw that happen before my very eyes. And just so you know, John is the first of a number of witnesses in this gospel who has no reason to lie. He's not trying to make himself sound big. Do you remember how the conversation started? I'm not the Christ. I'm not the prophet. I'm not Elijah. I'm no one. I'm not trying to build my case. I'm just telling you about him. I'm sure that he is the Christ, the King, the Son of God. So John's not just trying to big himself up. And actually, he was killed for some of the things he preached, like most of the people we'll be reading from in John's Gospel. So he's a reliable eyewitness. He's got no reason to lie. And he says, I saw the Spirit descend on this this person. What does Son of God mean? Um, Well, if you were here last week, you probably think it means just, again, the eternal God, God the Son, coming into human history. So remember back in verse 14 of chapter 1, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So if you were here last week, you might think it's just another way of saying the eternal God has turned up, God the Son. If you come tonight, we'll look at Psalm 2. And there, son of God means king, the king of Israel, the human king of Israel, the king on David's throne. And again, John, in his gospel, is saying both those things. These early chapters are pregnant with lots going on. Just look across to verse 49. Verse 49. This is Nathaniel, um, who's told that uh, Jesus is the big cheese. And Nathaniel answers, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you're the King of Israel. Jesus is both the Eternal Son, who's always been with the Father, and the human King of Israel, the King on David's throne. Which means, if you'd been one of those inspectors, brushing through the crowds to try and get to John the Baptist for the interrogation, you would have brushed shoulders with the King of Israel, the Son of God, and the Eternal Son. Just imagine that. You just just kind of force your way past Jesus to get over there, not realizing he was standing right in front of your face. We'll hear more about the role of that king tonight. I won't go into it now. But just as we close, I want to say what a, what a... What an extraordinary thing it is that these three names, eternal God, Lamb of God, Son of God, could be given to the same person. It is the most extraordinary thing that one person could be those three names. Last week, we we saw that the word becoming flesh meant that we could see him, we could meet him, he could be touched and talked to face to face as a person. But actually, the incarnation, the word becoming flesh, wasn't actually about demonstration. That wasn't the reason why the eternal son took on ankles and feet and sandals and knees and hips and eyes and ears and hair. Wasn't that at all. The eternal son took on flesh so that he could be a substitute 
The eternal son needed to become a human being because a human being needed to pay the price. We needed a lamb who wasn't just a lamb, but was an actual person. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Remember, John said, I'm not even worthy to, to go near the feet of that man. I can't even untie his sandals. And yet those are the feet that walk to the cross and then allow some Roman soldier to nail those feet into the tree, like into the cross. Absolutely extraordinary. And I think I wonder sometimes, is that why we miss it? I think as Christian believers, sometimes we can kind of airbrush that. We just think of Jesus as just the saviour and not as the eternal almighty king. I think sometimes if you're listening in to Christian things or just thinking about, maybe I would like to become a Christian, this could be hard to get our heads around. How can it be that that pathetic image of a man nailed to the cross as a criminal could also be the same person who made me and will judge me? It's an extraordinary thing. I think it's hard for us to get our heads around. The most amazing thing is that the son himself was willing to do it. That God the Father, Son, and Spirit would say, yes, I know I'm the king. I know I'm the eternal son of God. But I'm willing to become the lamb of God. That's why the Bible ends in Revelation with so many people singing, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. Of course he is. The only person who didn't deserve to die. The only person who chose to come and die so that we don't have to die eternally. It's extraordinary. And I pray that more and more, us as preachers and us as a church family, would be like John the Baptist and saying, look, it's not about us. We're not impressive. We're messy and and have all sorts of problems. Nothing much, really. But we can point you to someone. Come and see someone who is just the most extraordinary person the eternal God who would be willing to die so that I could become a son of God and you. Let me do this in prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the Lord Jesus, your son, your eternal son, who was willing to become our saviour. Thank you that you so loved the world that you gave up your only son. Thank you that last week we heard anyone who believes in the son can have the right to become a child of God. And today we begin to see what it costs. And so we praise you for that. Pray here for any believer who lacks assurance. Please help them to reflect on Jesus and the sufficiency of his death. Pray here for anyone not yet trusting in Jesus who lacks assurance. Please would you bring them to see what they're missing and to put their trust in him. And for all of us, Lord, we pray we, like John the Baptist, would be people who just point to the Son, point to Jesus, and say he's the one to be talking about. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.